We're going to focus on verses 8 through 15, but for the sake of um, context, I want you to follow along with me as I read beginning in verse 1. It says, now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. That would be the distribution of the food. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And then there arose from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And then they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council. And they also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place. That would be the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council stood steadfastly looking at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we're thankful that you are a God who takes broken, flawed people and you look to do amazing things through them and with them. And Lord, we've seen an example of that here in the book of Acts. And so today, as we look at your word, I pray, God, that you would just continue to enlighten and encourage our hearts, that we might know individually what is our place in your family, in your kingdom. And so we give you this time now, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, the Master Tool Convention got off to a very rough start. Brother Hammer was appointed to preside over the convention, but Brother Screwdriver objected, saying, Brother Hammer, you are way too noisy to preside over this meeting. You're always nailing people with your opinions. I call for your resignation immediately. 
Well, Brother Hammer responded, well, what about you, Brother Screwdriver? All you do is go around in circles, never, ever getting anywhere. And Brother Screwdriver responded by saying, well, that might be true, but at least I'm not like Brother Plain. I mean, his work is just so shallow and surfacey. What right does he even have to be here? Well, if you're going to kick me out, protested Brother Plain, what about Brother Ruler? I mean, he always thinks that he's right and judging and measuring everyone else by his standards. Well, if you're going to come down on me, argued Brother Ruler, what about Brother Plyer? I mean, he needs to get a grip. And Brother Plyer responded, well, at least I don't rub people the wrong way as he looked intently at Brother Sandpaper. Well, just at that moment, the master craftsman craftsman came into the convention, into the tool shop there, and began to use each one of those tools at the perfect time and at the perfect way to make something of great beauty. You know, the body of Christ can oftentimes resemble those tools in the tool shop. There's many different tools in the body of Christ because there's many different people and many different types of people. There's a lot of diversity. And sometimes the problem that we can have in the body of Christ is we tend to focus on our differences rather than what we have in common in the Lord. But the beauty of the body of Christ is when Jesus comes and he takes all of these different people, all of these different vessels, and he uses us as he sees fit to make something of great beauty. And one of the things that we have seen here in the book of Acts is how Jesus works mightily through flawed people. I mean, think about the the church here in the book of Acts. It starts with this group of guys, the 12 disciples, who were always, you know, arguing about which one of them was going to be the greatest. They were all, you know, trying to, you know, get Jesus' attention, and they were always putting down one another. But what's interesting is 40 days after the resurrection of Christ, On the day of Pentecost, we see that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the early church. And suddenly there is this radical shift. Suddenly this group that was always, you know, kind of butting heads with one another are working as a unit and the Lord is adding to the church and everyone is catching the same heart. I mean, we've seen it several times already in our study through the book of Acts, this phrase, and they had all things in common. They were living with a what's mine is yours type of mentality. And God was doing this beautiful thing. And there was a heart of what can I give and what can I do and how can I help that permeated the life of the early church for several years. Now, I mentioned last week, by the time we get to chapter 6, we are several years into the life of the early church. It's going strong. I mean, it's 10,000 people strong now. And we see, though, here in chapter 6, a new attitude emerges. And suddenly, the mood changes from what can I give and how can I help to we're not getting enough. 
And we saw last week in the first seven verses that this complaint arose. There was a murmur, and it centered around the fact that there were two groups of Jewish people that made up the early church. There were the Hellenists, those were the Greek speakers, and there were the Hebrews, those were the Hebrew speakers, and the Hellenists were feeling like their widows were not being taken care of properly in the daily distribution of the food. So this complaint arose, it grew in the church, and it comes to the, 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 the attention of the apostles, and we saw that the apostles did something brilliant. They said to the whole church, our priority, our calling, what we need to focus on, is the teaching of the word of God, the studying of the word of God and prayer, because our priority is the serving here in the church of the spiritual food. So you guys need to choose seven men that you can put over this, whose priority is going to be the serving of the physical food. And they, and that's exactly what they did. Now, one of the things though, I didn't mention last week that I think is worth noting is this by not trying to take care of this need themselves. The apostles were allowing for other men in the body, in the church to be raised up, which is a mark of excellent leadership. You see, if certain people in the body of Christ insist on doing everything themselves, what happens is, is they hinder others from being used. They hinder other people in the church from being used and using their gifts and developing their gifts. So these seven men were chosen. And what's really introduced to us here in chapter six is the office in the church of the deacon. And Paul will write about in 1 Timothy and in the book of Titus about deacons and elders. What's the difference? Well, I would summarize or give a simple explanation in this way that the elders, their focus was on spiritual matters. The elders are, are pastors and, and, and those guys, those men in the church who are focused on teaching and counseling and, and discipleship. Their, their focus is primarily on people, whereas the deacons, their focus is on practical matters. And we see an example of that here in our text as these guys were chosen to oversee this daily distribution of the food. But make no mistake about it, this was a very important practical matter. It needed to be dealt with, but if the apostles tried to take this on themselves, it would have hindered them from their priority of being given to the word. And that would have made what we see here in verse seven happen. It wouldn't have happened to, or at least to that magnitude where we read that the word of God was spreading, multiplying greatly. So it was wise and appropriate for the apostles to open the door for these other men to be raised up and given this opportunity. And so seven men were chosen. And last week we looked at the criteria laid out in verse three for these seven men. That was seven men, first of all, among them. So they were seven men in the church. They were to be seven men of good reputation. In other words, they were men of proven character. 
They were to be seven men who were full of the Holy Spirit. In other words, they were spirit-filled men, controlled by the Holy Spirit, and they were to be seven guys who were full of wisdom. And I want you to notice in verse 6 that Stephen is the first guy mentioned, and he's given his own description. We're told there in verse 6 that Stephen was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And this is what I want to do today. I want us to focus in on Stephen a little bit. And I want us to see four things that we can learn from his life that will encourage us and give insight to us about how God might want to work in our lives or use our lives. And so if you're taking notes, number one, I want to mention or talk about Stephen's fullness. It says he was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And again, we noted in our study last time, when the Bible says that someone was full of something, what it means is that they were controlled by that. Stephen is a man who's being controlled, being led by his faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But don't miss this. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, we're told that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we see there in the book of Romans that there's a connection between faith and God's word. And so when it says that Stephen was a man who was full of faith, that means that Stephen was a man who was given to the word of God. He's a guy who's soaking in the scriptures. He's a guy that as I look at him, I see him as somebody who probably was every single time the church was gathering. He's, you know, he's there. He just is excited. He's hungry to take in the word of God. So him being full of faith describes for us that he's a man who's full of the word. And we see a great example of that next week in chapter 7 because he gives this incredible message that's laid out in chapter 7 that is this history lesson of the history of Israel and it really just ties how God was working and how everything was pointing to the salvation that would come through Jesus. But the very fact that we'll see next week how how Stephen handles the word tells us that he was a man who was given to the scriptures. So he was full of faith, but it also says that he was full of the Holy Spirit, which leads him to being used powerfully. In fact, look at verse 8 again. It says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So the Holy Spirit was working through this guy's life in this incredible way, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of power, and God's using his life in the miraculous. So we see, first of all, Stephen's fullness. The second thing I want us to note is Stephen's faithfulness. You see, it's true that God used Stephen in a remarkable way. And for a specific purpose that we're going to see in just a few minutes. But I want you to note this, and don't miss this. I want you to note that it started with him being faithful to wait on tables. It started with him being faithful in this overseeing of the distribution of the food. And I want to remind you of this. The book of Acts comprises 30 years in the life of the early church. It's a 30-year time period. And so what God's giving us in the book of Acts is sort of the highlights of what he was 
doing. You could go home today and you could read the book of Acts all the way through it in, you know, less than an hour. And as you're reading through it, you're seeing all this stuff that's happening and all this stuff that's going on and how God's moving and working and there's miracles and there's different things happening. But again, I remind you, this is just the highlights. It's the highlights of what's happening and what's going on. And I'm sure in the midst of those 30 years, there were a lot a whole lot of just normal days. And I point this out because we can read here in verse 6 of how Stephen was chosen for this role, and then two verses later in verse 8, how he's doing these miracles and being used radically by God, and it's easy for us in just reading through it to think that that just happened overnight. That one day this guy's serving tables and the next day he's leading crusades. But I guarantee you that it wasn't that way. That that was not the case. Why do I say that? Because God never works that way in scripture. We never see God picking somebody one day and then the next day he's being used or she's being used in some incredible way. There's always a process. There's always a training. There's always a time of God proving that person. And usually the proving happens as that individual is being faithful in what we might call the little things or the practical things. And so it's true that Stephen ends up being used in this radical way, but it's only after he responds to this invitation to be used in this practical way. And so I asked this question, what would have happened if Stephen would have responded the way I've seen some people, you know, respond when they're asked to get involved in serving in a practical way? What if Stephen would have said, you know, well, Pastor Rob, I'm sorry, but you know, I'm not called to wait on tables or I'm not called to serve in the parking lot or I'm not called to set up, you know, and, and take down chairs. I'm called to preach, you know. Or I'm called to lead worship. Or I'm called to the platform. I've literally had people say that to me before, if you can believe that. Well, I'll tell you this. If Stephen would have responded in that way, I can tell you with the utmost certainty that Stephen, if he responded like that and turned down the opportunity to respond and and serve and waiting on tables, he never would have been used in this other way. This radical way. His being used by God started with his faithfulness to serve in a practical way. Something else I want you to notice here. Notice there in verse 6, the next person who's named is Philip. And here's what I find very, very interesting about this group of seven men that were chosen. Is that Philip and Stephen both go on to further ministry. It seems as you read through, you know, the rest of chapter seven and into chapter eight, that they both end up getting used in a way that would be more elder-like versus deacon-like as they're giving the word and teaching the word and being used in that way. We'll see this next week in chapter seven. Uh, Actually, we'll see it beginning to see it here today in chapter six and the rest of chapter seven with Stephen. And then most of chapter eight is dedicated to the life of Philip. 
So it's true that both Stephen and Philip go on to further ministry that went beyond them overseeing the distribution of the food. But these other five men who are chosen here, what's interesting, nothing else is told us about these guys anywhere else in Scripture. And it's quite possible that the only role that they played in the church was this role. That all the only role they played in the life of the church was to serve the tables and to oversee the distribution of the food. And so why do I tell you this? Well, when it comes to these five other men, if all they did, if all they did in the life of the church, if the only role they played was overseeing the distribution of the food and overseeing, you know, taking care of the widows, that's okay. In fact, it's awesome. Because these guys were doing exactly what God had called them to do. They were being faithful to their calling. And I got to tell you, I love the men and women in this church. And there's a lot of you who serve in practical ways who serve behind the scenes, who serve in, in you know, setting up and serving in, in, in taking care of. I love your hearts. I love your commitment. I love that, that servant's heart that you have. It's amazing. It's such a blessing to this church. And I got to tell you, when I was pastoring in Oregon, the Lord really, really, you know, expanded my appreciation for those who were serving in that deacon and deaconess type of way in our church. You know, our church for the first four years of the five years that I was there was a mobile church. And what I mean by that is we met in a school. So every single Sunday, every single Wednesday, we had to set up everything. We were setting up the chairs and setting up the PA and setting up the sound system and setting up all the children's ministry classrooms that we would set up. And it was, it was a lot of work. It was taxing. But we had this an amazing group of men and some women who were a part of those set-up teams. And they, they were the deacons. And they were the ones who were just so faithful in all of that. And we did some really, really big events as, as a church. And they, they were just incredible. They had such a knack for uh, doing those things. But as the church began to grow and there was becoming, you know, more of a need for some other people to do some elder type of ministry, you know, some counseling and discipleship more than I could do on my own. I began to take a couple of these guys that I had discipled, that I had poured into, and I wanted them to be able to begin to pour into and minister and disciple and counsel, you know, some new believers and some other, you know, people in the church. And we had some people get saved at Easter. I remember grabbing a couple guys and saying, hey, will you take this guy and do the same thing with him what I've done with you over this past year? Will you disciple him? Will you spend time with him? And I did this with a couple of these guys. And what was interesting is after a couple weeks, I checked in with them and said, hey, how's it going? How's it going with that guy you're getting to? And I got, well, we really haven't gotten together. You know, we haven't met. And they gave these excuses about how they weren't able to, to meet. And I got so frustrated. I'll be honest with you. I was frustrated with these guys. I mean, what is wrong with them? I mean, this is a great opportunity. And it's time for them to step into this, you know, next role in, in their ministry and in their life. And, and I remember 
going to lunch with this guy named Dale. He was a older guy in our worship team. He was like a sage. I mean, he was just this guy really whiz, full of wisdom, great encourager. And we're sitting down at lunch and I am just pouring out my heart. I mean, I'm just venting like, Dale, I don't know what's wrong with these guys and what's going on. And I spent time with them. I discipled them and I'm giving them this opportunity. And they're not following through and I'm, I'm just all frustrated. And he goes, Rob, you're looking at it all wrong. He says, you know, God has given this church some amazing deacons. And all these guys that you're describing, they are incredible deacons. They're so good at all the practical stuff that goes on here and making sure that it happens. And he said this, he said, Rob, you just need to let the deacons deke. That's what he said. You just need to let them be deacons. You just need to let them be what they are and start praying for some elders. And when he said that, it was like a light went on. And I thought, you're exactly right. These guys have been faithful at doing exactly what God had called them to do. They're incredible deacons. And so we we just need to pray and God, we began to pray for elders and God brought some people to be, you know, some elders in our church, but it was such an eye opening thing to me to just really appreciate these men and some of these women who were serving in that type of way. And you know what? A lot of them are still at that church. They're still faithfully serving. After 26 years, when I was just up there this past fall, I I, I saw a bunch of them and they're still faithful, still doing the same thing. And they've never moved further into anything else. You know why? Because they're not called to. And here in our text, we see, you know, Stephen and Philip, they're going to move on into some further ministry. Why is that? Because it's what they're called to. You see, this is something that we all need to understand. The Bible refers to all of us. This is how God views us, that we are all stewards. Everybody say stewards. This life is a stewardship. And a steward is someone who's given something by someone else. And to steward it means they're going to take care of it. And God has given to all of us things to steward. All of you who are parents, God has given into your hands kids that you are to steward. He's given to all of us resources that he wants us to steward. And to see how we would use our resources and involve them in the kingdom of God. He's given all of us gifts and talents, and we are a steward of those things too. And in this thing that we call the church, the body of Christ, this local expression of the family of God, God also gives all of us opportunities that we are to steward. So some of you, the opportunity that God has given to you is to be a greeter and you're at the door and you're greeting people, you know, as they come in, you're that friendly face that is so radically important. Some of you are are out in the parking lot, helping people get in and out and parked in in our very cramped parking lot space. Super, super important. Some of you guys are, are doorkeepers. That's what the Bible calls you. We tend to call you ushers, but I like doorkeeper and you're the guys that stand 
back here at the doors and you're letting people in to the church and greeting them. And some of you are, are serving, you know, you're a steward. You've been put in the coffee house ministry or you're, you know, a keeper of the grounds around here. There's guys that just take care of the facility and take care of the grounds. One of the things that the new things we're, we're looking to see God provide is, is some setup teams some people that that would be their thing because, you know, we have a lot of events that happen here. In fact, we're, we're going to, we've turned tomorrow. We will have turned the sanctuary over five times in five days. Five different times where we're stacking all the chairs and putting up tables and tearing them all down. And we're going to do that again tomorrow. And we're looking for some teams that would actually be formed of some people, men and women, that that would just be their thing. That when there's an event or something going on, we could say, hey, you know, is your team available for this? And so there's all these different ways that God calls us. There's people, guys who are on our security and, and girls on our security team. I don't know if you knew we had that, but we have some people every single service that are, are doing security here, watching out for or, you know, wolves or, or, you know, that type of or something that was somebody that would come into here that would, might want to do something harmful to the body. They're part of our security team. Super, super important. We have some of you who, what God has entrusted to you is you maybe lead a men's group or a women's group or a circle group on, on Wednesday nights. And some of you, you know, are overseers of a home group. And some of you are youth leaders and youth counselors and, and all of us, all of us who are serving in these different ways, God has put that opportunity into our hands and he is, he, he wants us to steward it. Sunday school teachers, another one. But here's the thing. You know what God's looking for in all of those different things? You know, the one thing he's looking for faithfulness. First Corinthians four, two, he says, this is what I'm looking for in a steward. I just want a steward to be found faithful. And here in the story of the book of Acts and in the history of the church, there's no indication whatsoever that these five other guys were not faithful. In fact, there's every indication that they were. It worked so well that the apostles were able to give themselves to the word. And as we saw in verse 7, the word of God spread radically. So here's the question. Why? Why were Philip and Stephen given further ministry? The simple, it's a simple answer. It was, it was because of their calling. God had a plan for them that went beyond the waiting on the tables. It doesn't mean that they were better. It doesn't mean that they were more faithful. It was all about calling. And God had a different calling for these five other guys. And I point this out because there is a misconception today in the church that is based on this scriptural principle. The principle is this. It says, if you are faithful in the little things, you'll be exalted with much. Or you'll be exalted with greater things sometimes is the way that it's interpreted. And many people in ministry and in the church have a tendency to take that to mean that... Exalted means always bigger. Means, you know, if a pastor is serving faithfully in his church, God's going to give him a bigger church. His little church is going to become a mega church. And, and I've seen people get so discouraged when that doesn't happen. But did you know this? The average church in America today is 80 people. Seriously. 
The average church here in Southern California, we have a lot of mega churches. The average church in America is 80 people. The average Calvary Chapel in America is 150 people. And I know some of these men pastoring these churches that have never grown to be more than, than uh, more than 200 people. And they're amazing pastors. They're incredible Bible teachers. They're men who have been so faithful. And you know what? God has exalted them, but the, the exalting that he's given to them, it hasn't been necessarily a bigger ministry or more people. It's been more influence. It's more opportunity. Some of these guys are so cherished in their community that their leaders in their communities look at them and they seek counsel from them. I've seen God use them in just incredible, incredible ways. So we have to be careful that we don't have the tendency to think that, oh, if I'm faithful, that means God's, no, it, it has everything to do with what has God called you to? So Stephen and Philip move on into different types of ministry, not because they were better, not because they were more spiritual, but because of their calling. And that leads to point number three. We want to consider is Stephen's special calling. You see, God is going to give Stephen further influence because there's a specific call on his life and a specific person that he wants Stephen to impact. And we'll see that here as the story goes on. Watch what happens. Verse nine again, it says, then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia. Cilicia and Asia, and they were disputing with Stephen. Now, what is this synagogue of the freedmen? What was that? Well, in Jerusalem, the temple was the central place of worship. There were sacrifices that happened there. There, The priests worked there. There was an enormous amount of activity that was going on there. But when the people of Israel were taken off into um, captivity in Babylon, So now they're far away from the temple. One of the things that they did was they built synagogues, these these, uh, secondary places of worship that were called synagogues. And over time, these synagogues end up being built all over the Middle East. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 6, the Talmud tells us that there were over 390 of these synagogues in Uh, Jerusalem alone. And the synagogue kind of served as like the local church. And like a local church, each one of these synagogues has its, its own style and it had its own flavor and it had its own emphasis. And one of the synagogues there in Jerusalem that was meant is the one mentioned here, the synagogue of the freedmen. And the synagogue of the freedmen was comprised of ex-slaves, freed slaves, or family members of freed slaves, which is why they called it the synagogue of the freedmen. And so in this synagogue, there were people from all of these different places. And one of them was this place called Cilicia. And the reason why that's interesting is because there's a character we're going to see shortly in the book of Acts that's from Cilicia. His name was Saul of Tarsus. He'll come to be known as Paul the Apostle. 
And this synagogue of the freedmen was most likely his synagogue, not because he was an ex-slave. No, no, he was a freed Roman citizen, but because he was drawn to the people there because they were from where he came from. Why do I say that? Why is that speculation? I don't think so because we're going to see in chapter seven that as Stephen is preaching, Saul's actually there. In fact, turn over to chapter 7, real quick, verse 54. And we see here that Saul of Tarsus was present for this insightful, challenging message that Stephen is going to give here. Verse 54, it says, And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. This is the religious leaders, all right? This is their reaction to this sermon that that next week we're going to see that that Stephen gives. They're gnashing at the teeth, but he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Can't wait to preach on that in a couple weeks. And he said, look, I I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. And then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears. That's putting their fingers in their ears. And they ran at him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and stoned him and get this last part. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Stephen gets killed. He gets stoned. And they lay down their coats at the feet of this Saul of Tarsus. And we'll read later how Saul says he was in full agreement with what was happening to Stephen. And Saul himself would go on a rampage with the direction and the authority of the religious community that he went on a rampage to single-handedly try to destroy this new movement of Jesus. But on the road to Damascus, we'll see it when we get to Acts chapter 9. He's going to Damascus to arrest Christians, to put fathers in jail, to have some people killed. He's met by Jesus on that road. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he makes this statement, isn't it hard? Tell him I'm busy right now. Um, He says, isn't it hard? For you to kick against the goads. And a goad was a stick that was pointed, that was used to poke out the donkey in order to get it going. And the goad that was pricking at the heart of Saul of Tarsus, I believe, was this message that we're going to see next week that Stephen gives where he retraces all the history of Israel and points how everything that God was doing was leading to the salvation that would come through Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah. And and Saul's hearing this. He's listening to this. He's in the presence of this. And he's thinking, how is this untrained guy? I've spent my whole life being trained in the scriptures. How is it that this guy knows so much? And what he was saying was pricking at his heart. And it becomes that very thing, that conviction of the Holy Spirit that would lead to his conversion. You know, I think there's some of you right now who are in this room, or maybe some of you who are watching online, that the Holy Spirit is, the, is pricking at your heart right now. 
Because there's something in your life that he has been calling you to change or calling you to do or calling you to respond to and you've been resisting it. For some of you, maybe it's that you've never even given your life to Jesus really truly and he's been pricking at your heart of your need to do that. For others of you, maybe it's been the fact that you've played the prodigal, you've walked away from the Lord and he's been calling you to come back and he's been pricking at your heart. And can I encourage you today, stop resisting. Stop resisting him and respond to that leading of the Holy Spirit. One more thing I want to mention before we move on here. For all of you who pray, have prayed and desired and said, Lord, I'd love to have greater influence. I'd love for you to use me in in, in a greater way. I want you to note this. He does do that with Stephen. And Stephen gets killed. All right? I just want you to notice that, all right? Because as you, if God does give you greater influence, know this, you might not physically die, but there's going to be a death that takes place. There's going to be difficulty that happens because with greater influence comes a greater target on your back from the enemy. So be, be aware of that. Watch what you pray for, all right? Now, I'm going to wrap this up as we head to communion now. And the fourth thing and final thing that we want to note about Stephen is his shining. Look at verse 10. It says, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And so they're bringing up these false accusations against him. If you've ever had that happen to you, you know how, how difficult and painful that could be. And Stephen's going to respond to all of these accusations in his sermon that we'll see next week in chapter seven. But it starts with false accusations against Moses and God, but then it progresses. Look at verse 12. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council. And they also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, the temple, in other words, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. Don't miss this. They're throwing mud on Stephen, but God is causing him to shine. And I believe that Stephen's shining here is directly connected to the passion he had for Jesus and for seeing Jesus in the word of God. Why do I say that? Because Paul, the apostle says something similar can happen to us. As we are seeking to draw near to the Lord, he, he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, how when Moses went up on top of Mount Sinai, he's meeting with God, he's in God's presence. When he came down off the mountain, his face was shining. So much so that he had to put a veil on. He was just glowing from having been in the presence of God. And Paul the Apostle says that a similar thing can happen to us when we are getting into the Word of God to seek Jesus, to draw near to Jesus, to behold Jesus. He puts it this way in chapter 3, verse 18. But we all, 
with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Do you catch that? As you and I are spending time to get into the Word of God, to seek Jesus, to draw near to Jesus, and be in the presence of Jesus, there is a transformation that takes place. And you will begin to shine. Oh, maybe not literally like Moses did, where you're glowing, but you will begin to radiate and reflect the very person of Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples and to us, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. As we draw near to the Lord, as we seek to behold Jesus, as we get into the word of God, what happens is we start to become like Jesus. We begin to reflect him to the world around us. And I think that's exactly what's happening here with Stephen. Stephen was a man of the word. And as he's sharing the word, he begins to radiate the glory of the Lord. But I want you to catch this. One of the things that they were accusing Stephen of was this. They were accusing him of saying that Jesus said he would destroy the temple. Do you know Jesus never said that? He never said he was going to destroy the temple. This is what he did say. This will be John chapter 2. It will be on the screen. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Catch this. As we move in a direction now of partaking of communion, I want you to note this. Jesus, talking about the temple, was really talking about his body. And Jesus allowed his body to be destroyed on the cross at Calvary. He did that in order to to make this body that he calls the church. Don't miss that. He allowed his body to be destroyed. On Calvary, as he was being crucified, in order to make this the bride of Christ, the family of God. And that's how special this is to Jesus. We have been bought with a precious price. God gave up, Jesus gave up everything to purchase you, to purchase me, to make us a part of his family and a part of his body and we can't take that for granted we can't lessen that we need to appreciate the beauty and the diversity of the body of Christ amen and not only that Jesus allowed his precious sinless blood to be shed So that all of us here would be blood connected. Do you know that we are blood connected? We are blood related. We have the blood of Jesus running through our lives. 
have touched our lives. The Bible says concerning the blood of Jesus that we have been justified, Romans 5, 9, and saved from the wrath of God. How? Through his blood. It's his blood that justifies us and saves us. In Ephesians 1, 7, it says that it's in him that we have redemption and we receive the forgiveness of sins. How? Through his blood. And we're told in Ephesians 2, verse 13, that we were brought near to God and brought into relationship with one another through his blood. In church, we need to celebrate that connection. We need to not focus on our differences and our diversities and our difference of opinions on non-essential things. That's how the church gets divided. And the big C church is very divided right now because of that. Focusing on non-essential things. Instead of focusing on what connects us, that we are this body, this bride, and we're connected by the blood of Jesus Christ. And as we take communion today, we want to celebrate that. So I'd like you right now to grab your communion elements. I'm going to ask the band to come up right now. And on the night that Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, he took the bread this little wafer on the top part of your uh, little lid here represents the bread. And I know these things aren't very tasty at all, but uh, this is symbolic of the body that Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he gave his body, allowed his body to be broken to make us his body. And so let's cherish that. Let's celebrate that. Jesus, we thank you for your body that was broken for us in order to make us your body, your bride, your family. Jesus, forgive us for focusing on our differences and help us, Lord, to see how beautifully and wonderfully we are connected. Let's partake of the bread together. On that same night, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for you for the remission of sins. And the Bible says when his blood is applied to our sins, which are many and as are scarlet, that they become as white as snow. But through the blood of Jesus Christ, God looks at you and he declares, I see you now in my son, covered in his blood, saved in his blood, and now you are justified. That's how he sees us. We're connected by the blood. And Lord, we thank you for your blood that, that spilled out from Calvary, your blood that continues to flow, that cleanses us, that heals us. And Lord, today we... We partake together of your blood. Lord, we want to know our place and fulfill our role in your kingdom. We want to be, God, your, your people and who you want us to be in this thing called your body, your bride, your family. So, God, it's with great appreciation that we partake today of this cup representing your blood. Let's partake together. We thank you, Jesus, 
We praise you, Jesus. I want us right now just to reflect upon what we've just done, what it means to be a part of his body, what it means for us to be connected together. I want us to do that as the band leads us in this song, the blood. Let's do that.